here's some good news. God in his mercy and grace knows each one of us, and he knows what we need. When we mess up our lives, God knows how to pursue us and bring us back into a relationship with himself. When we give up, God knows how to encourage us and help us to find joy again. Last week, we talked about the part that we play in bringing on some of our own shame and guilt. But God also knows that the part that other people have played in our life in placing shame and guilt on us that we were never meant to bear. And the best part of it all is that God knows when it's not our fault. Today I want to talk about the difference between objective and subjective guilt. Many of us carry around shame in our life that really isn't ours, and these burdens can be lifted from our shoulder. Sometimes as a pastor I preach messages that are filled with exhortation, what we need to do to live as Christ followers in the world. Sometimes I preach messages of proclamation, touching on various topics or issues. Sometimes we just dig into a passage of Scripture or a book of the Bible, but today it's going to be a little bit different. I want you to visualize for a few moments that we are not speaker and audience, but we are together and we're sitting at a table having a cup of coffee, and we've turned off our cell phones or other distractions, and we're just listening to each other. And I'm inviting you into this conversation because I'm interested not just in challenging you today, but I'm interested in transformation and change. And God has brought each of us uh, to this moment for a reason. There's a verse of Scripture that encapsulates everything that we've been talking about in this series, and it's found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. And I'm hoping that this, over the course of these next few weeks, this verse is going to sink deeply into your mind and heart. The Apostle Paul says to us, and read it with me again, if you would, uh, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. Paul makes this statement for the purpose of our instruction, and he says the aim of this instruction is for love to flow from a good conscience and a pure heart. For without a pure heart, we can't have a good conscience, and unless we have a good conscience and a pure heart, we really can't love. These qualities are all interconnected. You know, conscience has driven many people to an early grave. You and I know that some of us were brought up in situations where we are carrying guilt that is really not our guilt and not our shame at all, and yet it has been imposed on us, and we're carrying it around with us through life. Today, I want you to know that God is available to take that load of guilt from us. In fact, I want you to think of yourself walking along. Maybe you've come today with a heavy backpack of shame or guilt or something that you've been carrying, and God's going to give us the opportunity to lay it down. Now, I'm going to be using the words guilt and shame almost interchangeably, and I know that these, there are those who want to distinguish between those two words and, uh, but I, I think that shame is often a subset of guilt, and certainly the two are related, and that's why I'm going to be using them today in the same context. See, a lot of things in life are our own fault, but it's not all our own fault. Let me begin by saying that you and I often inherit some of the shame and the guilt that we feel. We inherit it particularly from our parents. It is passed on from one generation to another, and we know how debilitating that can be. Let me give you some examples. 
First of all, we are prone to accept false guilt because of harsh parents who have devalued us. And I think of what I've seen in a supermarket, and I know you have as well. Uh, maybe a parent will yank a kid and say, you know, why are you being so stupid? Don't you know how to behave? And sometimes even slapping the kid. Now, if that goes on in a supermarket, just imagine what goes on when they get home. And I want to say to myself, don't parents know any better than treating this tender young child in this way? But it's not just harsh parents. We know, of course, that there are a whole lot of abusive parents. Abuse is going on in homes, even in the best of communities. You know, the whole world got upset uh, because a couple of years ago, a famous football player punched out his girlfriend in an elevator. And I understand and agree that such behavior is inexcusable and it's unsettling. But today, if there were security cameras or hidden cameras in many of our homes, we would discover that abuse exists almost everywhere and often behind closed doors and sometimes in good families and church families. Who are we kidding? This is not unusual in today's society. It happens and it happens right in our own community. It's all around us, and you and I, if we are victims of that kind of abuse, are going to inherit some shame and some guilt and some debilitating attitudes that go with it. And then, of course, we could also talk about addictive parents and how the children often have to lie for the parents to keep all the family secrets, you know, that have been kept from public view. And some of you bear that weight today. And as you've gotten older, you've discovered that those same parents still want to manipulate you through guilt. One, one woman said, you know, there are parents who actually have a guilt franchise. My mother has the whole Midwest distribution of guilt wrapped up all by herself. And these are parents who say, well, didn't we raise you? You owe us. Now, I believe that under most circumstances that we should make sure that our parents have the basic care that we need. I think the Bible says that. We should do that. But what I'm speaking about here is the fact that there are many parents who learn how to manipulate everybody around them, and they are toxic people. And the question that we always have to ask is, you know, why are they doing what they're doing? Is it out of ignorance or is it out of evil? Sometimes it's necessary for us to set boundaries in our family. One man said, whenever my mother-in-law comes to visit, she destroys our relationship. She tries to build a wedge between me and my wife, and she even tries to get to the children and, have them, and criticize us to them. There are times when we just have to set up some boundaries. But all of the guilt that's inherited in doing even that is unbelievable, and it travels with us. So there is the guilt that is heaped upon us. But there's also guilt that happens as a result of honest mistakes in life. This, of course, is also false guilt. Some people call it subjective guilt. See, objective guilt means that we're actually guilty. We have objective shame because we actually did something that's shameful. But we're talking today about that which kind of is imposed upon us. And sometimes it's, it's even through honest mistakes. A woman convinced her husband to go to a concert one evening, and he didn't want to go, but they finally went, and they were involved in a car accident on the way. He was killed. For 13 years, that woman made regular trips to the cemetery, heaping upon herself all the responsibility, all the guilt for having convinced him to go to that concert. 
And I'm convinced that God doesn't want us to live that way. Now, I understand that we never really get over some things that happen to us in life. I get that. But the simple fact is that many of us are struggling today with guilt and with shame that is not our own making. I want us for a moment to turn our attention to 2 Samuel chapter 13 in the Old Testament. It is undoubtedly one of the more challenging stories from the Old Testament to deal with in a public setting. So I'll try to be sensitive to the subject matter and the nature of our audience. But this story does illustrate a huge problem in our society today. And this particular story is about sexual victimization. But the reason I'm using it is that because it provides us an opportunity to talk about shame. About shame. I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'll tell you that the sto- uh, the, a bit of the story, and you can turn to it if you wish. But here's the short version of what happened. Absalom was one of King David's sons, and he had a beautiful, full-blooded sister by the name of Tamar. They were both of the same parents. Amnon was a half-brother to Absalom and Tamar. Now, Amnon was a man uh, very different. He was a man filled with lust. David, of course, knew what his son was like because of previous problems he had had with him. And Amnon burned with desire for Tamar because the Bible says she was absolutely beautiful. In fact, he even asked a friend, he said, what do I need to do to get her? And then the friend said, look, why don't you pretend that you're sick and you ask Tamar to come over and bring you some food. And when you're in the room together, you can do whatever you like. You can overpower her. You can physically assault her. So it sounded pretty good to Amnon. And he pretends to be sick. And David foolishly says to Tamar, hey, why don't you go over and go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare some food for him? So she does. And then when they're in the room alone, Amnon says, come to bed with me, my darling sister. And she answers, don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. You see, Tamar's response reminds us that cries of help are not always heeded by abusers. Next week, we're going to talk about the person whose conscience has been so scarred that they don't even hear the cries of the people around them, some of the people that they're abusing in one way or another. So here's what happens in the story. Tamar asks the question, where can I go in my shame? You hear the pain in her voice if you read this story. She's going, what is she going to do with her shame? How is she going to handle this experience that's going to be loaded on her as a result of something that's not her fault? How is she going to deal with this? Well, the bottom line is Amnon did violate his half-sister, and then it says in verse 15, then suddenly Amnon's love turned to hate, and he hated her even more than he loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. And we know that in abusive families, what we often find is that love and lust kind of go hand in hand. And here's how the story ends. Verse 18, so the servant put her out and locked the door behind her, and she was wearing a long, beautiful robe, as was the custom in those days for the king's virgin daughters. But now Tamar tore her robe and put ashes on her head, and then with her face in her hand, she went away crying. Skipping down to verse 20, so Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And that's apparently where she lived out the rest of her life. This beautiful life was completely devastated by shame, not because of what she did, but because of what somebody else did. 
And what about David? What, what did he do about it? Notice in verse 21, it says, when King David heard what had happened, he was very angry. <laughs> well, good for David. But why didn't he step in? Why didn't he begin to defend her? Why didn't he take care of Amnon even before this for all the evil that he had done? And I'll tell you why. In the previous chapter, we read that David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then he had her husband Uriah killed. So David had lost all of his moral authority when it came to this kind of an issue. And so he became angry, but he didn't do anything more about it. Now, it's just like that in homes, many homes today, where parents become angry, but they don't know how to control some dysfunction that they see in the family, and instead of taking some appropriate action, they choose to do nothing. So the question is, how do people like us deal with that kind of guilt and shame that comes from that? How do we manage the consequences of our situations in life? And if we don't deal with it biblically, what happens? Well, first of all, there are those who become addicted to failure, even addicted to abuse. Sometimes people who are abused as children end up marrying an abuser. You say, well, how would, how, why would they do that? Well, you can study this and you'll find that there is such a thing called addiction to abuse. In other words, the person who has been abused often feels that they're so broken, so unworthy, that they don't deserve anybody better. It happens over and over again, so they become addicted to failure. They have a sense of learned helplessness. They have the opportunity to change and walk away, but they can't or they won't. Sometimes the results of being abused is compulsive behavior or latent anger or someone who's dissatisfied with themselves, unable to relax. Sometimes people just feel guilty for simply being alive. They feel as if they should not have ever been born because they've been so belittled, so devalued by virtue of their upbringing and an abusive relationship. And sometimes the end result is paranoia. The person who says to themselves, I expect to be betrayed. And if you criticize me, I assume that you're my enemy and your intention is to betray me. I know you're connected to other people and you're all setting, setting out to destroy me. All of that because of a feeling of being so empty inside, being seen as less than people want to see us, and the result is we begin to create this false world, a world in which we do not want ourselves to be known by anybody. It's a world of denial, in which we build up a lot of defenses. And I'm praying today that if any part of this message hits home in your life, that you will allow God to help you put down those defenses and allow his grace to bring healing in a way that no other relationship can do. But the other effect of an abusive or dysfunctional relationship, especially when it happens to us in our younger years, is the need for power and control as we grow up. You see, by developing controlling behaviors, we make sure that nobody's ever going to hurt us. Nobody's going to shame us ever again. We make sure that we control our environment and control the people around us so that we won't be shamed. So what does God say about all of this? Well, there are two passages of Scripture I want to share with you briefly. One is found in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 61. And you'll notice here that God is speaking to the nation of Israel, but I understand that this application is to Israel first, but I think this is what God does for his people even in our time. If you remember back to the story of Tamar, she puts ashes on her head as a sign of humiliation. 
It's a sign of her helplessness. She felt herself locked into a, a certain lifestyle, certain set of circumstances, so she, she lived out the rest of her life very desolate. But notice what God says in Isaiah 61. And these are words that Jesus recited when he was in the synagogue one day talking about how the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come, and with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. And in their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted in, for his own glory. God says the shame of the ashes can be taken away. And in its place, I'm going to give you a beautiful garland to wear. I'll give you joy instead of mourning. I'll give you praise instead of despair. And I believe that some of us here today may need to see ourselves in these verses. Think about yourself being in that state of shame. And God says, you know what? You don't have to bear the scars in your life any longer because I'm covering it. I want to bless you. I want to give you joy again in your life. Isaiah 61 goes on to say, You will be called priests of the Lord, ministers of our God. You will feed on the treasures of the nations and boast in their riches. Instead of shame and dishonor, you will enjoy a double share of honor. You will possess a double portion of prosperity in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. Our shame will be taken away. And then we'll notice in verse 10, he says, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. I'm like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding or a bride with her jewels. Let me just encourage you today by saying that God in his mercy and grace knows every need in our life. He knows the part that we played in our own shame and guilt. He knows um, the part that other people have played and he knows it's not all our fault. And today, no matter what the source of that shame or guilt may be, I want to encourage you to see that God is bigger than all of that. And I want you to understand that in his grace and in his mercy, God can meet you at your point of need. The other scripture is from the New Testament book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter in the first three verses. And it says, therefore, since we, have, we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, he disregard, disregarding its shame, and now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility that he endured from sinful people, and then you won't become weary and give up. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying to us is that when Jesus died on the cross, he overcame all the shame connected with that cross. As he was hanging there, he knew it was a shameful experience. He knew he was being cursed. He was bearing our guilt. He was bearing our shame. He was bringing about a deliverance that would go down deep into our heart and spirit that so that we could be free. 
we no longer need to carry around that guilt and that shame because shame usually binds us. It causes deep emotional problems. It destroys reputations. It reduces us to silence. It exposes weaknesses and leads us to feeling like we've been abandoned. Shame always diminishes us. But the good news is that Jesus knows exactly how we feel because he went through it. He suffered greatly on his way to the cross. He was despised and rejected by the people of his day. He was mocked by the crowds in his last moments. He felt forsaken even by his Father in heaven. And on the cross, he was exposed for all the world to see. And he bore the weight of our sin and our guilt and our shame in that moment. Know this, shame loses its power in the presence of the cross. I would like to encourage you today to get alone with God and claim the fact that shame no longer has the power to bind you. It no longer has the power to debilitate you. And whether it's justified shame because of something you've done in your past or whether it's because of what someone else has done to you, the Lord is always with us to help us and give us the sense of dignity and self-worth that he created us to have. In the process, what you're going to have to do is to forgive those who have done wrong against you. And remember, when you forgive, you're releasing them to God. Maybe the person who abused you or shamed you is no longer alive, and you say, well, I can't connect with that person anymore. I can't be reconciled. That's true, but you can submit that anger and shame and resentment to God. So the first thing that is very important for us to do is to come to Jesus and understand that we have a high priest who can relate to us and accept his deliverance from the shame and know that God is greater than anything else going on in our life. Shame loses its power at the foot of the cross and our self-worth is not based on how we feel. Our self-worth is based on who we are in Jesus Christ. If we have received him as our savior. It's based on the work that he's done. It's based on who he calls us to be and that is a son or a daughter of the most high God. You and I must know that our feelings and all the things that have happened to us in life oftentimes distract us from understanding that we are a child of God, but God wants us to be free, and he wants us to serve him with joy. Remember, the purpose of this instruction is that all of us would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. And today, it doesn't matter what you've done or what's been done to you in this life. God's grace can rescue you if you're willing to come to him and receive the gift of healing and the gift of forgiveness and the gift of new life. You don't need to be a victim. God can set you free. You know, even David, after his great mess that he made, could not uh, restore, he couldn't clean up his own mess. He couldn't make everything right in his life. And he prayed to God and he said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. All of his tears couldn't bring Uriah back to life. All of his tears couldn't restore the purity of Bathsheba. But God came and he took all the shame and the guilt away and he restored to David a joy he had never known before. See, God may be speaking to some of us today who have struggled with shame and with guilt in our own life. And maybe you've been running, maybe you've not known exactly what to do with that, but if your confidence is not in Jesus Christ today, I invite you to trust him. Do you know that he, what he did, he anticipated everything in your life, your sin, your mess, your dysfunction, your guilt, your shame, everything about you, God has already anticipated. And he stands ready 
to meet us where we are. So I invite you to invite him in today. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would take this message and apply it to whoever needs it, which really is probably all of us. And I pray that within this community of God's people, there, that this might be a safe place in small groups, in classes, in worship where we can be honest and know that we're not going to be judged and that we're not going to be despised because, you know, we're all broken in one way or another. So God, make us, as a, uh, make us to be a church that is a healing community where knowing that shame cannot ultimately destroy us, we can be honest about our relationships where we can... Um, be accepted and received and prayed for and loved. Father, we invite you today to bind up our wounds. We pray that whatever wounds we may have because of the sin of others or even our own sin, help us to know that you will heal us and you want to restore us so that we can know that we belong to you, that we can have a sense of dignity, that we can be sons and daughters of the Most High God. Bring deliverance to your people. Whatever it is that you're saying to us, Lord, grant us the ability to do that and help us to remember that there is power in the cross. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.